Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 59. Before beginning, a short programming note. Two episodes ago, the audio file attached to the podcast became cross-linked with an older file. One of the podcast's astute listeners notified me, and after a few days of working with Apple and Blueberry, we were able to correct the problem. The updated episode was titled 3.57.1 and is currently available. So, if you were wondering if I really wanted to cover Alexander the Great twice, as compelling and legendary as he was, the answer is no. Once was enough. For now. If you never heard the episode on Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, it's available and certainly worth your time. On with the show. Last week, in the second episode on the history of Cleopatra's Egypt, I covered the beginning of her relationship with Mark Antony, including the three children he fathered with her. At the time, Rome was ruled by a triumvirate, with Antony and Octavian making up two-thirds of that ruling body. The third will was Lepidus, who I'll get to later in this episode. Antony had just been defeated by the Parthians, and in the process lost some 30,000 soldiers, a thorough rout and embarrassment. The Parthians were from an area that is now eastern Iraq in Iran. He would drown his sorrows with a bottle near Berytus, eventually the modern city of Beirut, Lebanon. Cleopatra would travel to him, convincing Antony to return with her to Egypt. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up at the point of their return to Egypt and pressing through the climatic naval battle at Actium. And with that, let's get started. Back in Rome, well, actually outside, around and to the south of it, Octavian's reputation was growing. He was quickly picking off his rivals, including Sextus Pompeius. This Pompeius, more commonly referred to as Sextus, was the youngest son of Pompey the Great, and held control over the Isle of Sicily. From here, he not only had a well-regulated army, but a somewhat formidable navy. Sextus would initially defeat Octavian in a naval battle, and Octavian would turn to his generals Agrippa and Taurus, and was further strengthened by the third member of the triumvirate, Lepidus. Taurus and Lepidus would invade Sicily, while Agrippa led the navy, Sextus would escape to Anatolia, where he was captured and executed on Antony's orders, one of Octavian's rivals down, a few to go. After victory, Lepidus kept the army he raised on the island of Sicily. Octavian sensed an opportunity, and it gave him an avenue to pursue against Lepidus. Following the defeat of Sextus and Lepidus keeping his legions in Sicily, he and Octavian would argue as to who held control over the island. Lepidus had been the first to land troops in Sicily, and had captured several of the primary towns, and he felt that Octavian was treating him as a subordinate rather than an equal. Lepidus would argue that Sicily should be absorbed into his sphere of influence. Then he and Octavian would negotiate. Lepidus offered up both Sicily and Africa to Octavian, if Octavian would agree to give Lepidus back his old territories of Spain and Gaul, so mainland Western Europe, 
Octavian then accused Lepidus of attempting to usurp power and fomenting rebellion. Then, to his embarrassment, Lepidus's legions in Sicily defected to Octavian, and Lepidus himself was forced to personally submit to his co-ruler, Octavian. Things were not quite going according to his master plan. Octavian wasted no time and stripped Lepidus of all his power. He was then exiled to Circe, a western coastal town on the Italian peninsula, south of Rome and north of Naples. Curiously, Octavian allowed him to keep the title Pontifex Maximus, meaning the head of the priest, and the same title held now by the Pope. In his case, it was a title with little power, and with that move, the triumphant had become a biumphant, one down, one to go. Meanwhile, back in Alexandria, Antony and Cleopatra were acting as essentially co-rulers over the eastern portion of the empire, and making it a family affair. In 34 BC, Antony would send an envoy to the Armenian king Artavas II, hoping to negotiate a potential marriage alliance that would culminate with the wedding of the Armenian king's daughter to Alexander Helios, Antony and Cleopatra's son. The Armenians were, well still are, from an area east of what is today Turkey, an area also known as the Caucasus. The Armenian king refused, so Antony reacted in a typical Roman manner toward a proposal rebuffed by an ally. He led his army in their march to Armenia, where he defeated the Armenian forces, captured the king, along with the rest of the Armenian royal family. They were then imprisoned and transported back to Alexandria. Once there, Antony held a military parade, a parade very similar to the Roman victory parades, except for the culmination with strangulation part. In this parade, Antony himself donned the costume of the Roman god Dionysus, the one in charge of wine, grape harvest, and ritual madness, among a few other things. Dressed as such, Antony would present the royal prisoners to Cleopatra, she was seated on a golden throne above a silver platform, a true spectacle. So much of a spectacle that word of it made it back to Rome, where it was not well received, to the point that they found the whole affair to be insulting. Why should a territory enjoy a triumphal parade, celebrating a victory won by Roman troops? Such affairs should be reserved only for Rome. And who did this Cleopatra think she was? And why was Antony empowering her? But the dynamic Alexandrian parents weren't done. Soon after the parade, they held an event where Cleopatra dressed as the Egyptian goddess Isis, known as the deified mother of the Pharaoh. She would declare that she was the queen of kings and her son by Julius Caesar, Caesarion, be entitled as the king of kings. She then declared that Alexander Helios was the king of Armenia, Media, and Parthia. Finally, her youngest son, Ptolemy Philadelphus, at the time only two years old, was declared the king of Syria and Sicilia. Her daughter, Cleopatra Selene II, was given Crete and Cyrene. There is even the thought that during the elaborate ceremony, Antony and Cleopatra may have wed. 
but we're a bit uncertain if it did really happen, which is a bit boggling. Then again, Antony still had a wife in Rome, and a brother-in-law who wasn't very pleased with him. After they were done, Antony carried on an age-old tradition of asking for forgiveness instead of permission, and he would send a report to Rome requesting ratification of these territorial claims. These would become known as the Donations of Alexandria, just in case you ever run across the phrase. Octavian sensed an opportunity and wanted to publicize the events to the Roman populace, but the two consuls of Rome, who were both supporters of Antony, had it censored from public view. First Amendment, anyone? Still nearly 2,000 years in the future. As a note, the consuls were elected officials, two at a time, each holding the office for a year. They were constitutionally subservient to the triumvirate, at least when there was a triumvirate, and they primarily ran the civil affairs of the Roman government. By 34 BC, Octavian and Antony were engaged in a full-fledged PR battle for the title of sole ruler, a battle that would rage in one form or another for years. In this cold conflict, Antony would claim that Octavian had illegally deposed Lepidus from their triumvirate. Octavian piled on the accusations, accusing Antony of unlawfully detaining the king of Armenia, marrying Cleopatra while still being married to his sister Octavia, and wrongfully claiming Caesarion as the heir of Caesar. Octavian, of course, would claim the role of heir to Caesar. The popular opinion, no doubt shaped by Octavian's accusations, was that Cleopatra had brainwashed Mark Antony with witchcraft and sorcery. The opinion of her was that she was likely as dangerous as Homer's Helen of Troy, a danger that threatened Roman civilization. And this rumor mill was very creative in its accusations. Cleopatra was said to have dissolved a pearl worth 2.5 million drachmas in vinegar just to win a dinner party bet. The rumor mill did not spare Antony, grinding out the trope that he stole books from the library of Pergamum to restock the library of Alexandria. I touched on this in one of the episodes on the latter library. Pergamum was an Anatolian coastal city on the Aegean. The book theft story is widely recognized as being false, and the Pearl Rumor story is so random it probably is also untrue, but there's no substantive documentation in either direction. The overall theme, though, is that Octavian did not let any opportunity go to waste. To that end, on January 1st, 33 BC, Octavian gave a speech to the Roman Senate. This was when there was exactly one year left in his, along with Antony's terms, as the triumvirate. In this address, Octavian accused Antony of subverting Roman territorial integrity and being a minion to a foreign queen, Cleopatra. All part of his ongoing persistent narrative to undermine Antony and set himself up to be the sole ruler. Antony was setting the stage in his own manner, That year, so also before his term would expire, he would declare Caesarion, Julius Caesar's now 12-year-old son, as the true heir of Caesar. 
obviously an attempt to undermine any claim to power Octavian may have had, never mind that Octavian had been elected. Then, the end of 33 BC rolled around in the beginning of 32, and with that, the expiration of the terms of the Triumvirate. At this point, the former leaders, essentially dictators, would become mere private citizens. On January 1st, 32 BC, Gaius Socius and Gnaeus Domitus Ionobatus were elected as consuls, and since there was no longer a triumvirate, they were the top dogs. They were both loyal to Mark Antony. One month later, Socius would make a blistering speech in front of the Senate denouncing Octavian, and also introduce legislation against him. Wasting little time, and during the next senatorial session, Octavian, flanked by private armed bodyguards, entered the Senate House and directed his own accusations against the consuls. It must have been a particularly effective speech as the next day, the consuls and over 200 senators, all Antony loyalists, fled Rome to join Antony. Game on. And if it seems we're building to a climax, we are. About the same time, both Antony and Cleopatra would journey to Ephesus in the first part of 32 BC. Here, Antony would assemble a fleet of 800 ships, 200 of which were provided by Cleopatra. Then there was a bit of political maneuvering. The other Roman consul, Aenobatus, worried about the optics of having Cleopatra there. It seemed that her presence would play in Octavian's narrative. He would try to convince Antony to send Cleopatra, along with her fleet, back to Egypt. But not every leader in Antony's camp saw the situation in the same light. Publius Conidetus Crassus, one of Antony's high-ranking generals, advised Antony that Cleopatra's role was legitimate, as after all, she was funding the war effort and was also a competent monarch. It seems that Antony tried to split the difference and made a half-hearted attempt to send Cleopatra back to Egypt. Cleopatra refused Antony's request, thinking that she, well really her troops, could stop Octavian in Greece and therefore defend Egypt from him before he could get anywhere close. This, though, led to a division in Antony's ranks, especially in the political sphere. Prominent Romans, such as Consul Aenobatus and Senator Lucius Monatius Plancus, would switch to Octavian's side. At the time, Aenobatus was ill with an unspecified fever, but he still left Anatolia in a small boat to join up with Octavian. As could be suspected, Antony was upset by this, but despite his displeasure, he would soon afterwards send the fleeing consul all of his equipment, his associates, along with his attendants. Apparently, the illness was serious, as most such things certainly were more lethal then than now, as Anobatis would die a few days after finally reaching Octavian. Later that year, but not much later, as it was the spring of 32 BC, Antony and Cleopatra trekked to Athens. It was here that Cleopatra persuaded Antony to send Octavia an official declaration of divorce. Once word of this was received in Rome, Plancus, 
the senator who recently defected from Antony to Octavian, advised Octavian that he should seize Antony's will. At the time, it was being held by the Vestal Virgins, who were trusted so much that they held the originals of many documents, including treaties and many sacred objects. This group of chaste women were in charge of various sacraments, including the eternal sacred fire. Literally. At least until it went out. To be clear, Octavian, according to traditional rites, as well as the law, had no authority to pull Antony's will from its holding place. But once the text is public, you really can't unring that bell. And make it public he did. He highlighted the parts of the document that argued Caesarion was Julius's heir, and where Antony argued the donations of Alexandria were valid. These first two parts should have shocked no one, as Antony had made his opinion clear on the matters. The next two topics were different. First, Antony intended to be buried next to Cleopatra in Alexandria, so much for his loyalty to Rome. And worse, Antony intended to move the empire's capital from Rome to Alexandria. And that bit had to cause a collective gasp from the crowd. But Octavian wasn't quite done yet. At the same time that he was announcing Antony's intent to be buried in Egypt, he began the construction of his own tomb in Rome. The next January, he was elected as Consul of Rome, so no longer a mere private citizen. He would use his newly acquired powers to argue that Cleopatra, as a client ruler, was illegally providing military support to a private citizen, Mark Antony. And with that, he declared war on Cleopatra, cleverly avoiding a direct conflict with Antony. But the result was the same. At the onset of the impending war, Antony and Cleopatra controlled a larger naval fleet than Octavian. But as far as the two navies went, Octavian's ship's crews were better trained and on the whole battle-proven. Many of Cleopatra's crews were conscripts from the merchant fleet, so they had high seas know-how, but no battle experience. In the beginning, Antony wanted to leverage their fleet size by sailing across the Adriatic Sea and blockading Octavian at either Tarentum or Brundisium, both Italian coastal cities. Cleopatra took a more defensive posture, exceedingly concerned with defending Egypt. And it was her force, so her orders won out. The both of them would set up their winter headquarters at Patria, which is on the west coast of Greece. When spring of 31 BC finally bloomed, they relocated to Actium, which is not terribly far away, but did, well does, have a great harbor. Well, it's large enough that it's actually considered a gulf, known as the Ambracian Gulf. Remember that name for a minute. And now for a tie-in with the Bible. And you know who, the legendary villain of the Christmas story, makes an appearance. At the time, Cleopatra and Antony relied on the support of lesser client kings in the regions under their control. And normally this would have included Herod. But, like I covered in the last episode, there was a bit of bad blood between Cleopatra and Herod. Conveniently, there was an earthquake in Judea, 
providing Herod with an excuse not to send military aid to Cleopatra. Also, Herod's cousin, the Nabataean king Malichus I, failed to send support. The campaign was not starting out on the right foot. In the summer of 31 BC, Octavian's forces would engage in several small battles with Cleopatra and Antony. He would come out marginally ahead in all of them, but that wasn't the worst of news for the Egyptian queen and private Roman citizen. Many of the leaders of their force, including Antony's longtime companion and general Delius, and the allied kings Amintas of Galatia and Diodorus of Phalagonia, defected Octavian. Galatia was a region in central Anatolia. The people there were known as Galatians, and that should ring a bell. Phalagonia was a region in north-central Anatolia, on the Black Sea. Cleopatra's leadership was urging her to abandon a naval strategy, retreat inland, and face Octavian in a land engagement at a yet-to-be-determined Greek battlefield. But she was concerned that Octavian would take his fleet, capture the Egyptian fleet, and sell both of the fleets to Egypt and overtake her home country in her absence. Late that summer, Octavian's navy would corner both Antony and Cleopatra's fleets and essentially blockade them at the Ambracian Gulf. Then, on September 2nd, 31 BC, the naval forces of Octavian, at the time being led by Agrippa, engaged with the Allied Eastern forces at what has become known as the Battle of Octium. And the Egyptian queen was not a mere observer. She was aboard her flagship, the Antonius, and was in command of 60 ships at the mouth of the Abrasian Gulf. But her ship was at the rear of the fleet. It's thought that this position may have been part of an effort made by Antony's officers to marginalize her during the battle. The ships were dual-powered by both rowers and sails, one more reliable than the other. Antony ordered that the ships should have their sails at the ready in case they needed to pursue a retreating enemy, or retreat themselves, or if the opportunity presented itself to make a run on the blockade. It's estimated that Antony had about 140 ships, plus Cleopatra's 60, compared to Octavian's 260. But Antony's were of better quality, with his ships being heavier and wider than Octavian's. And remember, then, just like today, Warships are essentially floating gun platforms. Well, then they weren't guns, but other weapons. Most of the ships carried about 200 troops, and since they were on the water, they were officially marines. Also in this number were archers. These ships were typically armed with six catapults, and since Antony's ships were larger, they tended to sit higher out of the water than Octavian's. This made them more difficult to board, and also enabled Antony's forces to more easily lob their missiles onto Octavian's decks. It's always better to engage the enemy from a higher position, and this includes naval battles, especially true then. The bows of the ships typically had heavy bronze plating and square-cut timbers, making a ramming attack less effective. About the only strategy that would prove successful was to smash the side of the ship, breaking its oars and making the vessels immobile. 
Of course, if you had a cell, and if the wind was blowing, then no oars were necessary. Having said all of that, a larger ship has a large drawback, and that's lack of maneuverability. It's hard to turn a truck like a sports car. And there was something else in the situation. Anthony's rowing crews were suffering through a severe malaria outbreak, acute enough to deplete their ranks. So the large truck was really underpowered. And there was one more thing working against Antony. Shortly before the battle, one of his generals, Quintus Delius, defected to Octavian and brought the battle plan with him. Octavian's fleet was primarily smaller, more maneuverable ships, and Agrippa used this to his advantage. His plan was to get in close, attack the above-deck crew with a shower of arrows and catapult-launched stones, and then retreat. These stones were powerful enough to penetrate the sides of the ship from a range of about 200 yards, or 183 meters. They could also be aimed at the marines assembled on the deck, troops awaiting an offensive boarding, if they could only get the larger ships close enough. And like I mentioned, he was advantaged by his crews, who were better trained, professional, well-fed, and rested, and healthy. Around midday, Antony moved to engage Agrippa, and Agrippa saw Antony's ships coming, so he made a run for the open sea, staying out of the range of Antony's catapults and hoping Antony would pursue. As the afternoon and the standoff wore on, Antony attacked. The battle would run all afternoon into the evening without a decisive victory for either side. At this time, Cleopatra took advantage of an opening and led her fleet to the open sea, perhaps in a retreat or maybe a dash for the open water to head towards Egypt. What happened next is a bit of a dispute, but I'll go with the most accepted theory. Antony saw that Cleopatra's fleet was beating a hasty retreat, and in the fog of battle took this as a signal that all was lost. He then had the crews hoist the sail of his ship to follow. Soon, the rest of his fleet was doing the same and his fleet, now succumbing to desperation and confusion, was routed. Antony would assemble his men on as many ships as could be effectively crew and burn the rest. He would transfer to a smaller ship and escape, taking a few ships with him as an escort to help break through Octavian's lines. Confusion that led to needless desperate moves that led to defeat. The alternate theory is that Antony and Cleopatra early in the battle realized it was unwinnable. He would split his force in order to draw in Agrippa's in two different directions, creating a hole in the middle. Through this hole, both he and Cleopatra would escape on separate vessels, abandoning his fleet. Either way, by the end of the night, Octavian had defeated everyone, including the assembled land forces. Some of these land forces did attempt to retreat, making it as far as Macedonia before Octavian caught up and captured them. All that was left was now in his control. Antony's ship would follow Cleopatra's as the two escaped the battle and headed for Tyaron on the very southern Greek coast. 
Octavian would capture and occupy Athens, and Antony and Cleopatra would sail to Peritoneion, on the western Egyptian coast. Here they would part, Antony heading to Cyrene to raise more troops and Cleopatra sailing to Alexandria. She would attempt to enter the harbor in a celebratory manner, thinking she could trick the populace into believing she had been victorious. Which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the saga of Antony, Cleopatra, Octavian, Rome, and Egypt. You don't want to miss it. And, since this is the last episode before Christmas, I hope you have a happy, peaceful, and reflective Christmas day. I will be re-releasing the Magi episode on that day, so give it a listen, if just for a refresher. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.